Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Thomas Igeme, one of the founders of Tribe, which is a fantastic organization I've been a fan of for a while, and who's also the current head of people manager development at ServiceNow. Thomas, how are you doing? I'm holding up okay. How are you, Al? I'm doing the same, holding up. There's a lot going on in the world, as we just talked about and prepped for this. You know, it's emotionally draining, It's but it, there's an element of beauty that can come of this. So now, you know, we're seeing glimpses of that. But yeah, I just want to launch, you know, right into it. And, you know, you're a Black person. You have had your own struggles in your life, which you've shared so eloquently at the Pafau events in the past. And I have been always inspired by your vulnerability and authenticity. So I'm really excited for this discussion, yet appropriately, you know, humbled, you know, on the topic as someone who is not a Black man in this country, but in doing my best to empathize and help be an ally in the pursuit of more equitable ways of being, as well as proper justice and safety in our society. So again, thank you for engaging in this discussion, not only the diversity inclusion and the theme of Black Lives Matter, but also you know how data and analytics and organizational leaders can help get advance this movement that we're we're on. So again, thank you for being here. And you know, given what I just shared as the tee up, you know, where are you sitting right now? What do you see? happening from your perspective. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Very kind and very clear tee up, Al. Deeply, deeply appreciate it. I struggle a little bit to answer that question with where I'm at. Like I think many people do. The last week or so in particular have been full of emotions. The answer to how I'm doing differs not just day to day, but moment to moment. I've been filled with anger. I've been filled with despair. I've been filled with sadness. I've also been filled with hope. And I'll walk through kind of each of those pieces. But the biggest thing and the reason why hope is at the top is I think that finally at a national level in the United States of America, we are discussing the murder of Black people by the police like the crisis that it is and the urgent crisis, you know, an urgent crisis that needs to be solved now versus a problem or issue that we need to debate. So that fills me with some joy and joy. And I I don't even use that word lightly because I think it is true in the midst of all of it. I did not think that we would, I would live in my lifetime, and I'll be honest, to see a moment where America would be ready to take this so seriously. And so in some ways I feel exhausted. I think like, like you've mentioned, tired like many people, but also invigorated to see what we can do I hope that, and we'll go into more of this in a little bit, but I'm hoping that when the next generation looks back on 2020, one of the things they will remember is the market shift for the better that we were able to make as a society when it comes to racial justice. Yeah, you and I share that hope. And one of the things that I'll just applaud you for right out of the gate is you're naming it for what it is. You know, you've heard me present and I cite a Chinese proverb, the beginning of wisdom is calling things by their right names. And, you know, yeah, Black people have been murdered openly, meaning the recourse has not been there. And that fact is not only being recognized, but we're looking in the mirror historically and how pervasive it's been and how the inaction has been kind of this mad loop time and time again. So the level of empathy that I personally have had is like, wow, you know, this problem has been well known for 
hundred years plus, and it's still just recycled into this place that can only be despairing for black people in America. It does seem like a shift for me, Mm. but it sounds like it's sounding like a shift for you. You didn't see this happening in, in your lifetime. So what do you think has to happen? What would you hope to see in the days, weeks, and months ahead, whether that be structurally from a political policy level or from an organizational level, you know, within, you know, companies, because both you and I, that's where we play day to day. So, you know, what would you like to see? What I'd like to see, (laughs) I chuckle a little bit because I think it's both very simple and very complicated, very simple. And I'll start with what makes it very simple. I really, for me, articulated under four kind of, there are four things that I'd love to see happen. First is I'd love for us to stop killing Black people by the state. And the second is I'd love to stop seeing the mass incarceration of the Black community, once again, by the state. And the third is I would want to see a real change in the education and healthcare opportunities, equity in education and healthcare for the Black community. And fourth, I'd like to see equity in access to economic well-being in this mm-hmm. country. And so those for me are really simple because they're kind of the basics of what it takes, right, to feel like you can live free and seek to, to use an Americanism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps in this nation. That right. you want to first be free of oppression. And secondly, you want to have access to opportunity. At its core, that is all I desire. The reason that I recognize that that is really hard is that the forces that are in the way of that are deep, they're complex, they go right back to the origins of this nation when we think through slavery and we think through how Black people found their way onto this continent. And we think through the history of slavery and then through that, through Reconstruction and then through segregation and Jim Crow and then over into mass incarceration. There have just been time and time again, real systemic, and that's a word that you'll hear a lot in this work, but really means that things that have gotten bigger than any one of us and how we feel about each other that we've gotten to a point that there are certain systems that have just been in place for so long that people who really desire to do good in that system end up harming each other mm-hmm. inadvertently. And undoing those systems take work and has, has, takes work and takes time. And you know that is one that one piece around the importance of that systemic is where I'd like to underlie. I know a lot when let's pick up the issue of my number one issue, which is to stop seeing black people murdered by the police. There are a lot of police officers who I know personally, who I absolutely admire, who I know go out every day and truly do risk their lives for the good of their communities. I know police officers who I know love me and care for me. At the same time, though, I am petrified at the thought of being pulled over by the cops. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is despite those many good actors who I know Chances tell me, probability tells me that my chances of leaving an interaction with the police alive as a Black man are slim in many cases. And that is something that fills me with fear. And so ultimately, that is what we are trying to go against and trying to break through and hopefully live in a world in which everybody is able to live in, and like I said, ultimately free of oppression and with access to opportunity. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that you shared. It not only resonates, but that 
creates a very, for lack of a better term, just almost an anger response in me because, and without going into my story, which is very different because my stories with police officers and injustice have been fleeting, whereas for the Black community, it's pervasive. And you look at what happened with George Floyd, it's not only the perpetrating officer, but the officers around them. So that speaks to the culture, that speaks to the system. So how do we change systematically? And we've had some goes at it. There's been protests before, but you know, here we are and there's a general consensus that this is different. So what I am exploring, and we're doing it live right here with each other, is I want to understand more from people like you who have endured this throughout your lives and you had your friends, relatives endure it throughout your lives and their stories going back generations that are intimate to those people, not just, you know, the stories that you read about in history books. And so if I have the willingness and ability to engage, listen, learn, empathize, I can in turn take appropriate action. However, if I don't take those steps, then the probability that I will be inspired to take sustainable, important action in my thinking will be significantly less. So then it invites the question, how the heck do people like me who are not Black. How do we connect with Black people to have those stories? And is that going to be on our own gumption to go out and, hey, you're a Black person, can I talk to you? Or is it going to be a forum set up by employers, set up by community activists? Like, how does that happen? So what are your thoughts there? Well, I think the first thing is, there's lots of access to these stories that don't require you to go and point on, to knock on someone's door or hit them on the shoulder. And I'd actually encourage everyone to avail themselves of those. You can, some wonderful resources are Let's Talk About Race, put on by the Smithsonian. Mm. You can literally Google that. And it's a great introduction to this history and then specifically around police violence. And there's the, for those of you who have Netflix, I encourage you to watch the documentary 13th. If Mm. you're looking for a broad overview of where these goes, wonderful places to start. I actually think it's very important for people who desire to be allies to the Black community at this moment in time to take on some of that burden for learning on your own. I think that will do two things for you. For many, many of us, this is a time of exhaustion. George Floyd is not new. It is the last in a long, long line of deeply painful moments of real hurt and pain and fear. And just to make this very real for you and our listeners, Al, where I work, we have an email list that goes around. And unfortunately, this is something that has happened often enough that now it is a known thing. When yet another story of police brutality would come up in the news and yet another video of someone being murdered, we'll often just have a listserv where the Black people in the um, office will send a note to each other, just offering words of encouragement. Hold your chin up. Make sure you take time for yourself. Because very often that was a a pain we held on our own that many others weren't able to see. I only noticed last or two weekends ago that when George Floyd died, we actually didn't have the opportunity to create a new thread because we just responded on the one that we were already on an Ahmad Aubrey. Right. Wow. I'll just say that again. We were still in the process of grieving the last time we all had to see a video of someone being murdered when the next one popped up. 
And so I only share that to understand that you are talking to a group of people who are deeply, deeply hurting at this moment. Yeah. At the same time, though, and, you know, Al, you pointed out, I think that there are many of us who feel hopeful. I'm so grateful for the people who have shown up now, for people who are, some, for many cases, becoming aware of this for the first time ever mm-hmm. and choosing to courageously ask questions, own that they've not been engaged in the way that they would like to. And my refrain is, I am so glad that you are here. I welcome you. I need you. If this changes, it's not going to change because another Black man was killed because that has been happening over time immemorial and it didn't change things. It's not going to happen because Black people are protesting because we have been doing that for as long as we can remember. What is different here is that non-Black people are taking on this issue, not as a Black issue, but as a human issue. And I say human because what has really heartened me is this has gone beyond America. I'm seeing lots of people across the world join in and call for justice. And if this has any hope of changing, it'll be because of people like you. And so I welcome you. I am excited that you are here. And my big ask is stick with it for the long haul. Yeah. And, you know, to stick with it for the long haul, the education, correct me if I'm wrong, needs to be continuous. And that's not only on the macro level by watching videos and, you know, going to museum websites and when they open again, museums themselves, but also being open to hearing the stories of individuals and to make it real, you know, for them. And that requires creating space. If I've learned anything as a leader, not only professionally, but in my life and raising two kids, it's like, I have a responsibility to create space. Mm. My kids aren't going to create the space. And the people who have direct reports who are hustling around, who are trying to make things happen, they're rarely going to create the space. It's my responsibility to create the space, listen, slow down, really empathize, and then in turn, if warranted, take appropriate action. So would you echo that? And you know, what are some of your other thoughts, again, to create that space? Yeah. So one, I would 100% echo that. Thank you so much for calling that out, Al. And I'll talk to you a little bit of why I think making space to create those stories is so important. I think that one of the biggest things that we're up against when we're trying to fight racism or any ism is our gut, our finely tuned sense of intuition that in most cases, like this is what we as humans have evolved in order to survive, right? And there are things that, and so much of what it means to be a great leader, So much of what it means to be, quite frankly, a decent adult is about learning to listen to your gut and follow your gut. And yet we live in a world in which there are certain things that are so disparately experienced across different people groups that your gut is going to fail you. It's officers' guts that make them afraid when they see a Black person. That's, um, it's really an important call out too, because what is your gut informed by? It's gut it's informed by your experience. It's informed by your cohort or the people around you. It becomes your norm. So anything that shifts from your norm, you know, makes your gut feel uneasy. That's exactly what's required. Our gut has to shift our whole mental model around. There is a black person in my neighborhood. That is not an alarm bell. That's a human being who's going for a job. That's it. And yeah, I'm sure you've seen, you know, this one man wrote a very compelling and frankly 
tragically sad story about the fact that he will not go walk around the block without his dog or his daughter just mm. because it will be assumed that he is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I kind of knew that, but the story was so poignant that I, the level of empathy that I have to have is, you know, and I can only imagine uh, trying to look at myself as an evolved person, but there's so many people who are deeply rooted in this mindset that it's going to take a heavy lift to mm. shift. Mm. You know, so where I want to you know, ask this as a question to you is we have this situation where the level of awareness is elevating, but as you just alluded to, it's going to be a long haul. And my fear, likely shared by you, is that people say, well, I'm just going to you know, see these posts come through. I'm going to see all the protests and then things are going to you know, go back to normal and I'll just go on my you know, merry way. The change is going to happen from people such as me who are, are not Black who are going to keep it top of mind. So when the fatigue sets in, when their temptation to go back to normalcy comes, what would you advise? Because yeah. that's, I think, going to be a tragic loss if that happens across right. our country. But I mean, what do you not only hope, but what would you advise people do? Um, I, yeah, thank, thanks for that, Al. I've actually been, uh, multiple people have asked me this question, and my big advice is write yourself a letter right now. This is a moment in time, and I think that is of heightened awareness. Take advantage of it bottle up um, what this is. And when you write that, I'd, I'd ask you to, one, have empathy on yourself. It's not bad. We are more excited that you are aware and activated now than that you weren't before or might lag after. The second thing is note why this feels like so important, so urgent to you right now. Mm-hmm. And just make a note of the commitment of who you want to be at mm-hmm. this particular moment in time and how you want to show up. I saw this quote that, that challenged me personally when I said, and it said something like, well, you know, you keep asking yourself, what would I have done during the Holocaust? Or what would I have done during the civil rights movement? Yeah. And the answer is you're doing it right now. Right. And, and I think that's a challenge for all of us, myself included. But I'd say, take it down, write that down, and then keep coming back to it because you're going to need to come back to it in two weeks, in two months, in two years, because you are going to get exhausted. I can tell you, speaking as those of us who have been in this fight for as long as we've been here, it is exhausting. It's exhausting because progress is slow. It is exhausting because you're going to make mistakes and it sometimes offend the very people you're trying to help. And that's going to feel extremely deflating. And what all of us need is for you to keep trying and keep pushing looking around, learning what you can, taking what action is in your way. And so whatever way you can encapsulate the energy you feel right now, and remember that will be a huge gift to me and so many others. It's a beautiful idea. And you have my personal commitment that I will do that myself. And I will encourage my kids. Actually, they're still young enough. I will mandate that they do that. (laughs) So let me tease this next question up in this way. And I'm going to make myself a little bit vulnerable because I this is an action that I've already taken and I do not want to share it like looking for the validation, like it's right or good or, or anything. It's just something that has happened in response to Black Lives Matter and everything that's happening over the last couple of weeks. It's this, is that CHRO reached out to me and shared a letter that she had planned writing to 
all the employees. And I gave her some ideas to consider. But one of the ideas that emerged was, oh, we're going to have a task force, a diversity and inclusion task force. And as I read, I was like, that doesn't feel right. And so what I advocated as, again, an idea is that this is really about safety. This is about physical, emotional, and psychological safety that people you know, need to feel that not only they belong, but they are not going to lose their lives, that they're not going to be persecuted, that they're not going to you know, be shamed. And so it seemed to land with her well. And in turn, she shared it with uh, the CEO and it seems to be uh, published today. And in fact, if it, if it is, and I don't want to, you know, you to say, oh, that's great or in that way. But what I want to ask pointedly, particularly as someone who is not only experienced, but a thought leader and created a product to address mm-hmm. diversity and inclusion, is that the right bucket to put it in? I view it as being more fundamental than that, Mm. something more pervasive. I know there's an element there, but I do not know. Diversity inclusion has been under-resourced. It's been kind of, Mm. kind of trying to get, you know, influence people, but this is, seems salient. And I do not know exactly, you know, what that means, but I'm looking for your guidance and perspective on, you know, again, how can this be not only a committee that comes and goes, but something that is there ongoing. That's And this is the part where it gets hard because I think there are many dead bodies in the water, let's be honest, with the attempt to really figure out how companies respond to diversity, to equity, to inclusion, to injustice in a way that's helpful. I'll took it through two lenses. I think the first is what is urgent and then what is kind of a long-term strategic imperative. So I could not agree with you more that the issue right now is an issue of safety. The first, if it's an issue of safety when it comes to the protection of Black people from police brutality, but it is an issue of emotional and psychological safety for your Black employees who are coming into work truly traumatized, literally, from what is going on. It's also an issue of safety for your non-Black employees who are confused and uncertain about how to respond, who want to reach out, but don't want to overburden. And so your first kind of responsibility as a leader in an organization is how do we make this safe space, this space safe? for all of these people. And that I think on both of those fronts can look really like what role do we have in perhaps supporting the movement that is at play in our nation, but also in creating a new open with this ally, loved it, and just creating the space for mm-hmm. conversation within our organization so mm-hmm. that we can slow down enough to have that. But speaking from a more long-term perspective, Unfortunately, many of our organizations have been part of the problem when it comes to racial inequity. And I think a big part of that is a need to acknowledge that. And in order to understand the role that business has played in this, you can look at it through any which way. A lot of people focus on, which is rightly an important, representation both at leadership levels and across the organization, access to economic empowerment. But you can look at it in terms of where we spend our money and who we're supporting. You can look for it. We like to pretend, but all businesses, especially businesses of a certain size, are political agents, particularly in America. And where we choose to spend our money, as I like to say, our budgets are moral documents. And so I think the next long-term perspective is what does it look for us to run this business 
in a way that seeks to drive for racial equity and social justice and not the other way around. And I think some of that looks at looking at our representation. It looks at making this a strategic priority. So you mentioned moving DNI from a set of values and a task force that we look at to a strategic priority that the CEO is reporting out to the board of directors. And that will come with objectives and measures around it from hiring to promotion to feelings of engagement and equity that everyone is aware of. I think it looks like what the global citizenship for the companies and what organizations they're choosing to invest in and how they're choosing to do that. I've heard some incredibly inspiring stories this week of organizations that are really thinking creatively about doing things with pipeline, like investing in high school students who are interested in tech careers. I'm hearing this from some um, tech organizations actually pulling together college and scholarships for um, Black students in underrepresented um, or under-resourced areas to get them through college and create a pathway into their organizations. But it's that kind of thinking that I think we're all really hungry for. Yeah, I got chills when you said our budgets are moral documents. And yeah, your your words after affirmed that. And, and I can see to that you know, many have tried to wash their hands and say, well, hey, we don't have the diversity in our organization because the number of engineers are, you know, they're, well, that's a systemic problem <laughs> because they haven't had the, you know, primary education and access to higher education. I just learned, and I'm going to butcher the, the metric, but the University of California Black enrollment has gone down drastically from where it was 30 years ago when, when I was in school there. And it's like, oh my gosh, one of the greatest values I had from my educational experience was the diversity. I mean, I did not really know who Nelson Mandela was before I went to college. And then I educated myself, educated myself in Parthi and Tiananmen Square happened. And it's like, oh, now I'm socially active, politically you know, active. So the fact that that's happening less, the diversity is less, and now the pipeline is tighter, yeah. then it's not fair to anybody. And you know, this is where and I know we're getting you know up on time. There's so much that we can talk about, but you've touched on this fact that you know we need to have a heightened level of creativity and mm. openness to problem solve on this matter. And that might be partnering with local academic institutions. It might be creating your own training program and reaching mm. out to people you know in a black community or you know expanding it to Native American community and you know other underrepresented groups because it's not going to happen unless it happens. So, you know, thoughts on that need for a systematic solution to a systematic problem? Yeah. I mean, Al, I think you said it better than I ever could. I just published that there are lots and lots of great resources out there. One that I'm very biased about is the company that I founded, um, Tribe.ai. And you mentioned this at the start, really very much created for such a time as this, that ultimately when we're talking about systemic issues, it's not just about what we know and the way we might think of in traditional training, but really about changing the way we think and the way we act. And so we've really tried to create a company that goes after exactly that problem using the latest of neuroscience in terms of what things we learn and how we learn them to get there. But we're one of many, many other awesome resources that are available out there, but it is going to take a multi-pronged approach. It is going to take creativity. And one of the things that hearkens me about the role that business can play is that at least in a capitalist society, that is where creativity thrives. 
Right? We are used to having tough problems. That is, whole industries have been built on looking at tough, impossible problems and making them possible. I put my challenge out to every organization to think about things like the pipeline problem, like the issues of racial inequity, not as things to throw their hands at because they're really difficult, but things to bring the best of their brains to solve in really new creative ways. Yeah, that's, I mean... Yeah, you know, we've got to wrap up now. And, you know, I want to leave people, you know, inspired. And you just did that. And my temptation is just to leave it like that. But I also want to call out a challenge, as I'm sure you do as well, because it's one thing to, you know, spend 30 minutes and listening to you, you know, share your insights and ideas and like, I get it, you know, and I'm charged up. I also, you know, have this working thought that if you're not taking action, then you're you're responsible for perpetuating the problem. And mm-hmm. it's pretty binary in the way I look at things, which is really harsh when I'm talking to some people. And, but I, it's my belief. And so I mean, what, as we start to wrap up, and again, this could be a whole another, you know, avenue, but you know, how do you feel about that position that I just took? I agree with it. And I would say we've all been complicit. I've been complicit as well. I think for many of us, the price of entry to corporate America has been a level of quote-unquote professionalism that has looked like leaving our authenticity at the floor, but also our willingness to be honest and take a stand for things. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's one thing I'm grateful for about this moment is as a nation, it feels like we are saying enough is enough. Mm -hmm. There are things that are more important than being comfortable and being okay that there are certain things that are so morally repugnant or morally valuable for us to go after that it is worth it to take a stand, professionalism be damned. And I think for all of us, this moment is an invitation to not be complicit because what history will say about what we did with this moment, we are writing right now. Absolutely. Thomas, you know, thank you for sharing. You're awesome. And for those who are listening and getting to know Thomas for the first time, he's been an awesome contributor to Pavao events in the past. So, yeah, I'll make sure to point in the comments, you know, some of those talks and, and you get to know about his story, which has been very inspiring to me. So, Thomas, again, super appreciate you in this moment. Appreciate what you do. And yeah, let's keep making things happen, man. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Al, for creating this space. I'm very grateful. Likewise. Cheers. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.